Welcome back to another exciting installment of Modern American History. My name is Dr. Ryan Petgill, your host, and today's lecture is entitled The Development of the American West, Railroads, Agriculture, and Ranching in the Great Plains. If you've been a regular with us thus far, you can tell me that most, if not all, of our conversation has been focused on the eastern part of the Gilded Age American economy. That's going to change here today. We'll see industry come to the plains. We'll see the economy of the central part of North America connected to the bigger, broader American economy. And the inclination will be to assume that once industrial progress comes to that region, social and political progress will follow. Well, not so fast, my friends. This progress will come with a cost. And I want you to ask yourself, who bears out that cost? I think you'll find that along with this new industrial progress, we'll see the rise of institutionalized inequality. But for right now, sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the American history experience. One of my all-time favorite American adventure stories, and I always enjoy telling these stories to my students, the Lewis and Clark expeditions. If you know anything about this period in American history, you can tell me that this has everything to do with one of the major accomplishments of Thomas Jefferson's presidency, and of course I'm talking about the Louisiana Purchase. Now, a history judged Thomas Jefferson's decision to buy that part of North America very, very favorably, but you have to keep in mind that he didn't know what he was buying. I mean, it could be one of the most sophisticated, complex ecosystems in the world, or it could be chicken soup. Nobody really knew for sure. And on the flip side of that coin, the guy that sold it to him, Napoleon Bonaparte of France, didn't exactly know what he was selling. Could be primetime real estate, and it might be chicken soup. We, we just don't know, okay? One of the things that we're going to get out of these Lewis and Clark expeditions is really going to be reports. Reports that outline exactly how big North America is. Reports on the Native Americans that call those parts of North America home. Reports on what kind of animals uh, are indigenous to that part of the continent and might they be conducive to American industry back in the East? Yes, no, maybe. Um, and maybe most importantly of all, what kind of crops are going to grow real well in this part of the continent? All of this stuff comes back, and collectively what it does is it really whets Americans' appetite to go out west. Now to that end, I want to introduce you to a guy from Chicago by the name of Frederick Jackson Turner. By trade, Turner is a historian, and he's going to present this really famous paper in the 1890s, and he calls it the Frontier Thesis, and his argument in this paper is pretty straightforward. As far as Turner is concerned, the driving force in American history has always been the West. I mean, he takes this back to the earliest points in American history and notes that when those colonists in places like Jamestown figured out that tobacco was very good for business, all of a sudden they couldn't get out there and plow the fields of Virginia quick enough. And pretty quickly we begin to see this absolutely voracious appetite to gobble up as much land as we possibly can. And obviously this has implications for Western settlement. By the 1840s, this 
appetite to go out there and cultivate the West had come to be known as Oregon fever. But I want to make something very, very clear when it comes to our appetite for the West as well as Oregon fever. What I really mean is the West Coast. Those glowing reports were really from what was coming to be known as Oregon country, not really the center part of North America, what has now been known as the uh, the Plain States. If you've ever been to a state like Kansas, you, you can tell me that it's got a very arid climate. It doesn't get an awful lot of precipitation. It's true that, you know, we are producing an enormous amount of foodstuff crops in that part of the continent, but quite honestly, you'd have a hard time envisioning it becoming the breadbasket of the United States if you were standing in the middle of Kansas in 1842. So I guess the next natural question is, what changed? How did we go from looking upon places like Kansas as what Americans refer to as the Great American Desert to one of the most complex and sophisticated ecosystems in the history of the world. And the short answer, or I guess the shortest answer that I can provide for you would be the railroads. Just like we found out back in the East that the railroad uh, industry really caused every other industry to explode and do backflips, the same might be said of the Great Plains, the central part of the United States. One of the things that really gets a lot of traction in the 1850s is the concept of a transcontinental railroad. What we're trying to do is hook up the eastern part of the United States with California so that we can extract not only the resources, but also we can have access to markets that are emerging in places like California. Well, obviously, you don't need an advanced degree in geography to tell me that to do that, you're going to need to go right through the center part of the United States. You're going to have to go through the Great Plains. But one of the biggest challenges of building this railroad was convincing somebody to do it, convincing a company or an individual to pony up the money and, 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 and finance the construction of a transcontinental railroad. And because you really weren't going to make your money back very quickly, it was a public good after all, and because it was incredibly expensive to get it up and running, this is generally going to mean that the government is going to need to take on the role of stimulating that element of construction. And if you go back to the early stages of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln is actually signing legislation that's over the course of time going to allow us to lay thousands and thousands of miles of railroad tracks every which way across the North American continent. Part of what happens when that legislation takes into effect is the railroad companies are given huge stretches of land um, for free. This is government government owned land and it's granted to the railroads uh, to entice them to, to, to build a railroad network upon it. So by 1869, we, we had finished the railroad. We have a transcontinental railroad. We've hooked up Chicago to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, what the railroads have a lot of in the aftermath of this completion of the project is, is land. 
and it's just sitting there. No one's using the land. They didn't pay anything for it, but they're not making any money off of it either. So naturally, what a lot of these railroad uh, executives uh, decide to do is to sell that land. But understand, if you if you if you describe it as the Great American Desert, no, nobody's going to buy that. Nobody's going to buy desert territory. But if you were to describe it as this Garden of Eden, where anything would grow like magic, all of a sudden you're going to have some land-hungry Americans back in the East that very well may be willing to uh, uh, take that land off your hands. And keep in mind, because this was a government land grant, it's all entirely profit. You didn't pay a dime for that land. And so it's the railroads that's really bringing interest into potentially moving to a place like Kansas or Nebraska and becoming a farmer. And populating the Great Plains um, is not lost on the American government either. Around about the same time that it's granting railroads all of these land grants to, to encourage them to build railroads, um, it's also issuing something called the Homestead Act. And what the Homestead Act did was it provided uh, 160 acres of farmland in the West to anybody willing to move out to that area as long as you worked on it. You actually had to produce something. You had to build a home on it. That was another provision. Any four walls would, would, would count. So it can be one of these uh, brick and mud sod dugouts, but any anything would count to that end. And lastly, you'd have to stay there for five years. But if you met those three criteria, then you could keep that 160 acres of, of farmland forever and always. Well, it seems pretty obvious to me that what the government was trying to do was cultivate another element of the American economy, this being agriculture, to feed industry back in the East. Entice immigrants, and I do mean people from the East, but also people from Europe as well, um, entice them onto the plains with this land grant and get them growing something. I don't care what it is, corn, wheat, rye, you know, some, some crop, get them growing it, get them producing it, and send that stuff back to Chicago where you have industry that can, that can process it into a consumer item, processed food. In short, what the Homestead Act is going to do is it's going to connect the Great Plains to America's bigger, broader economy. But I just can't emphasize enough how central the railroads are when it comes to this interconnected economy. I want to take you to Texas for a second. I want to talk about Fort Worth, Texas. Um, if you ever have a chance to tour the stockyards in Fort Worth, um, the old town Fort Worth, uh, they're really clear when, when Fort Worth became Cowtown as you think of it as today. And that year was 1877, and it wasn't a coincidence that the year 1877 coincided with, uh, when, with when the Missouri Southern Railroad actually dipped down south enough into Texas and hooked up Fort Worth and North Texas's economy with the rest of the United States. And all of a sudden, cattle ranching, which was not really a very lucrative, not very profitable industry, 
all of a sudden it not only begins to boom, but it begins to attract investment really from all around the world. Certainly here in the United States, people begin to invest in cattle ranching, but even investors from, ab from abroad, because all of a sudden, you know, all these ranchers can now drive their herds into Fort Worth, hence the term Cowtown, and those, those, those cattle can be put up on railroad cars, shipped north to Chicago, where our good friend Jurgis Rudkus uh, transforms them into processed consumer goods, meat. And so this is connecting Texas's economy. Not so sure that you'd won't necessarily want to call Texas the Great Plains, but I'm hopeful that you can see how a centrally located state like Texas kind of is integrated into the mainstream of American economic life. So much of this has to do with the railroads. But regardless as to whether you're talking about farmers or ranchers, the notion of homesteading, the notion of cattle ranching, and frankly, the notion of laying down a railroad uh, is all predicated on a simple concept. And the concept is that land is barren, that that land doesn't have anybody uh, who has been calling it home for generations and generations. There's nobody living on the plain states. And of course, nothing could be further from the truth. We could spend a long, long time discussing the numerous indigenous societies, Native American societies, that called the Great Plains home long before there was even a United States, let alone something like a transcontinental railroad. But for the sake of time, I'm going to narrow things down to one specific group, and that's going to be the Sioux Nation, the Great Sioux Nation. Now, the Sioux were a nomadic people. Uh, that are really going to, we think anyway, start out in the central part of what is now Minnesota. And over the course of time, they're going to be a very big force to be reckoned with within that region. And there are a lot of historians that consider a conflict between the Sioux and the American government inevitable. It was only a matter of time because just like the American government was expanding from east to west, the Sioux nation was expanding from west to east. Now, the Sioux were fiercely defensive of their, of their homelands. And when the railroads came through, um, the American government is going to run into a lot of problems, uh, and problems involving sabotage and problems involving the Sioux attacking construction crews. And it's going to be very, very chaotic time period. Ultimately, people are going to, uh, come to a, a, a peace offering. And that offering is going to involve the establishment of the Great Sioux Reservation. I want you to think the western chunk of South Dakota and especially Wyoming. That was considered to be Sioux territory. And the American government more or less uh, promised the Native American people that they were going to stay off of it. Part of the problem was that there was gold discovered in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And all of a sudden, you had these Anglo prospectors that would roll into what the Sioux considered to be their territory. And that sort of rekindling this, this, this problem, this, this, this conflict that we thought that we had put to rest. Ultimately, what this is going to do is it's going to lead to war between the American government and the Sioux Nation. 
And the guy that the government is going to get to kind of deal with the problem of the Sioux is a, is a Civil War veteran, a guy that had won a lot of awards and acclaim throughout the war, a guy by the name of George Armstrong Custer. Custer is famous in American military history for all the wrong reasons, and a lot of these reasons do involve him dealing with what's going on in the Plains, especially insofar as the Sioux is concerned. Even before he was sent to the Plains to deal with uh, the Native Americans, Custer had developed this reputation being very aggressive, and ultimately that's going to work against him in this particular instance, because when he comes upon what he believes to be an isolated band of Sioux, he's going to pursue them very, very aggressively. Now, this is taking place along the banks of the Little Bighorn River. 1877, uh, Custer believes that this is an isolated band of Sioux and he's going to attack. He's going to inflict some heavy casualties. Well, what he does in that case is he cuts himself off from both his supply lines as well as his communication network and he dives in head first. Now, I don't know about you, but that where I come from, that's really severely underestimating your, your opponent. It's not exactly sound military strategy. And as it turns out, that was no isolated band. Over the course of the next several days, and really even hours, what's going to happen is these allies of the Sioux are going to encircle George Custer, the 7th Cavalry, and they're going to kill every last one of them, right down to the last man, including Custer himself. Now, again, I don't know about you, but a guy that just sort of makes these rash decisions like Custer did, things like overconfident come to mind, things like arrogant come to mind, things like ignorant and maybe even idiot comes to mind. But Custer wasn't called any of those things back in Washington. As a matter of fact, he was called the opposite of those things. He was known as a hero. This is a guy that the American government claimed paid the ultimate price to deal with the Sioux on the plains and, and, and was a great patriot for, for, for doing so. So the situation involving what's going to come to be known as uh, the Battle of Little Bighorn, it's a Native American victory. It's an unequivocal Native American victory, and it really proved to be a disaster for the American government. It demonstrated that the Sioux were, in fact, a force to be reckoned with, and you're going to need to take them serious. But in the aftermath of 1877, in the aftermath of the battle, what you're going to see the government do is really begin to double down on its commitment to kind of shore up its power on the plains. Maybe more than anything else, what the legacy of the Battle of Little Bighorn was, was a very clear understanding that the Sioux weren't going to roll over for anybody. Uh, they were going to resist, and they were going to resist in, in, in the most dramatic way they possibly could every step of the way. And to that end, the, the American military is really going to increase its presence on the plains. It's increasingly becoming a very militarized zone. Now, in the middle of this particular context, from 1877 to 1890, there's going to be a spiritual man, uh, uh, a Paiute by the name of Wovoka, who's going to articulate this spiritual vision that he has. And the vision involves Native Americans coming together. And as they come together, they become more and more powerful. And as they become more and more powerful, Wovoka emphasized that they needed to start dancing. 
this dancing was known as the ghost dance and it was almost like a spiritual experience that Native Americans would have when they would perform this. So let me switch gears for just a second and talk about this from the Anglo perspective. The military leadership that's watching this ghost dance play itself out on the plains is terrified by this dancing. And the military officials that are stationed in strategic locations begin to say, we need more troops. We need to buttress our forces. Nothing can really deal with this dancing. In any case, um, much of this is going to come down to the American military's resolve to, to really win the day on the plains. And to that end, by 1890, the, the tide had very clearly turned in the favor of the American government. Um, there were bands of Sioux that were being pursued robustly. And in the end, what you're going to see are, are, is more and more capitulation. One of those bands of Sioux warriors were told that if they surrendered their arms and made their camp along the banks of the Wounded Knee Creek, they would be okay. They would be safe. Uh, the American military wouldn't attack them and they would be allowed to kind of pass through. And we don't exactly know how this happened, but the long and short of it is, in this process of surrendering arms, a, a, a shot rained out. And the shot led to more chaos and confusion, and ultimately what it's going to lead to is what historians refer to as the Wounded Knee Massacre. Now, at the end of this battle, I don't know if you'd want to call it that, but, uh, you know, in class, that's generally what I call it. At the end of this battle, the battlefield was just strewn with Sioux bodies. And I don't exactly mean warriors. I'm talking about women. I'm talking about children. I'm talking about old people. I'm talking about the sick and the infirmed with virtually no recognition of their humanism. It's a very bitter story in, in our nation's history, the idea that the American government was willing to attack women and children and old people with very little regard for their, their existence as human beings. And it also demonstrated that the government itself was not above the use of military force if it meant making way for so-called progress. You can call that railroads, you can call that ranching so-called progress to come to the Great Plains region. Well, that's another one in the books. Thanks for joining us here today. I hope by now you can tell that uh, with this economic progress, there are social costs when it comes to the development of the Great Plains. If you join us for the next installment, the development of the far west, you'll see similar trends emerge. Industry will come to Nevada, Arizona, the Pacific Northwest, and of course, California. And with it will come new questions regarding American freedom, equality, and opportunity. But for right now, that's it. I hope that you've enjoyed this lecture, and I hope to check in with you again very, very soon. Bye.